So our Old Testament reading is from Genesis 14, verses 8 through 24. It can be found on page 10 of your pew Bible. This Old Testament reading begins after a lengthy account of a battle in the neighboring region of where Abram was currently living. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with uh, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all of the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he let forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with them, him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anur, Eskal, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. What ancient hope? It's good to be with you this morning, and a special thank you to Cynthia as well. I know some of those Old Testament readings can be a bit of a phonetic workout, and that one did not disappoint. We, we, we did move over the first seven chapters, though, so it, it could have been even a little uh, more complicated. But it's good to be with you this morning, uh, and especially, uh, so we had our launch of Ed Hour last week, but today was the first day that all of the, the courses started, and it's just a very joyful thing to see everyone out there, both on the lawn, in the basement, um, in the sanctuary, um, all of the different courses and classes taking shape. And as a church, as, as we say every week, uh, it is the Word of God that brings us together, that calls us, that creates us, that collects us, that crafts us. So before we look at this passage, let us come together before the Lord in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for your Word. 
We thank you, Lord, for what it tells us. We thank you for the promises it gives us. And we thank you, Father, for the way that in all it says it directs us to your Son, Jesus Christ, who just is fulfillment of each and every promise that you have given to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, I've had a number of technical difficulties this morning, so uh, um, this better be a really good sermon, right? Uh, <laughs> no, so um, as, as we talked about, so we, we, we enter this passage in the middle of an armed conflict. In particular, we, we find an account of, of a battle between rival kings, and we find out that, that Abraham's nephew Lot, and if you remember right, uh, in our last sermon, they, they separated. That was Genesis 13. And when we think about what's happening here, when we think about what's being described— this narrative might seem out, out of place in the larger account of Abraham's life. But when we look at it closely, we actually find that it highlights Abraham's faith in several crucial ways, and it works to, to undergird and buttress our faith as well. And towards that end, I want to look at this passage under two headings. First, I want us to look at the promise of God, and secondly, I want us to look at the priesthood. Of God. So let's look first at the promise of God. And to begin with, we see that Abraham is a formidable, a substantial military power. Now, in the previous chapter, we find that his herd of livestock is, is, is huge. It's, it's big. It's so big that him and Lot cannot be on the same plot of land. They have to, to separate. And here, we get an even fuller picture of Abraham and his company, just how big it is, we're told that he has 318 men that, t that, that go to this battle. And as one commentator writes, a fighting force of 318 implies that the total number of clan members was in four figures. And what that means is that Abraham's company, and we might not always think about it like this, but his company is well over a thousand persons. And since Abraham has become a traveling town, and what we see here is his battle with other towns, other cities. And the word here used king, uh, used as king, might better be translated as, as chieftain. We have these, these chieftains of these local cities. And again, Abraham is a substantial military power. We see that when he joins the battle, he actually turns the tide. He's the military power that defeats a number of other armies. And specifically, he defeats armies in Canaan. And that is a very, very important point. Remember that it's, it's Canaan. That's the land that's already been twice promised to Abraham in both Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. But we find something very, very surprising here. Abraham does not use his military force to take the land that God has promised him. Abraham refuses to take the land on his own terms. He feasibly could. I mean, especially right now, while the other armies, even the armies that he has rescued, are in a weakened, perhaps defeated state. Now, more than ever before, the land is right there for Abraham for the taking. But Abraham doesn't do it. Abraham does not force God's hand. Rather, Abraham waits upon the Lord, 
He waits, about, he waits upon God to bring about things in God's own time and God's own manner. He not only has trust in God's promise, but he has patience in God's promise as well. And actually, the present text itself even includes a clue to the fulfillment of the promise of the land. Genesis 14, 14 reads, quote, When Abraham heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born, <clears throat> born in his house, 318 of them, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Yet to call this area Dan is to speak about this territory according to its eventual settling by the tribe of, of Dan. But that's not going to happen until the book of Judges. To say that the pursuit stretched to the land of Dan is to speak of it as it's apportioned to a particular tribe of Israel. However, at the time of the pursuit itself, nowhere is known as, as Dan. Dan is not even born yet. It will be centuries before this land is called Dan. But nonetheless, it will be called Dan. And here we have a hint to the surety of God's promise. And likely this is a later redaction added by the Israelite community that has begun to taste the fulfillment of this promise. They know it will be called Dan because they are experiencing it. And Abraham believed this promise too, even though he himself would not see it in his lifetime. Because Abraham believed, he waited upon God and he refrained from taking the land by his own hands. He resisted the temptation to take what he wanted on his own terms. And we too feel this temptation to possess good things, not by God's means, but by our own means. Again, land is, is good. Land is a good part of creation. To dwell in the land is to dwell in a good thing. To dwell with the good gifts of earth and soil, rain and water, hills and valleys, homes and harvests. Those are good, good things. Yet to acquire a good thing in the wrong way is still the wrong thing. In particular, in Abraham's culture, to, to be a person of, of status, it was assumed that you would own land. In a very real sense, land was life. Accordingly, Abraham must have been a great mystery, a great enigma to the people around him, to his culture as a whole. Why would a figure so great, so great as Abraham, again, remember the size of his company, well over a thousand, why would this man not possess land. This makes no sense. But as we said in an earlier sermon, the only way to make sense of Abraham's life is his faith in the promise of God. And so we have to ask, is that true of us? Are our lives in some way, shape, or form unexplainable without the reality of God? Finances are a good thing, yet are we willing to refrain from financial practices that cut ethical corners, even when no one would notice, even when our coworkers and colleagues would expect us to do so? Professional success is a good thing, 
Yet, are we willing to admit our professional mistakes even when it would be easier and very possible to blame them on someone else? Are we willing to own up for our own failures even if it hurts our own career prospects? Are we willing to wait for the right person to marry or do we feel that we must force a match that would be unwise? Even more, are we willing to be single if God so wills it, knowing that the most fulfilled person who ever lived, Christ himself, never married? And I want to spend time here because in our culture, one of the equivalents of someone without land is a life without romance. A common answer in our culture is, what can we not live without? Uh, the uh, common answer to that question is romance. Again, Abraham's culture could not make sense of him. They could not make sense. Why would a man like that not have land? He must have land. And so we as the church have to ask, do we inspire a similar mystery with our approach to romance and sexuality? We have to ask, can a person truly be fulfilled without sex and romance? Philosopher Charles Taylor, who, who always does such a great job of, of looking and examining and diagnosing our culture, he comments upon our culture's emphasis upon romantic relationships, and he does so using the language of our culture, and in particular, the way we tend to frame this issue in terms of self. He says, these relationships are seen to be the primary loci of self-exploration and self-discovery, and among the most important forms of self-fulfillment. And this is where, at times, the church has taken far too much from the culture. In a culture obsessed with sexuality, the church has followed suit. Marriage is a good thing. It is a very, very, very good thing. But it's not the greatest thing. That status belongs to God alone. Yet the church at times has often marginalized the unmarried, made them feel like less than the married couples and families in their congregation. To the detriment of the modern church's flourishing, we have rather weak theologies of singleness and friendship. As one popular Christian author writes, quote, deep in his heart, every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. And I don't mean to be too critical here, but I do have some worries. Without a beauty to rescue or to, to fill in the other side of this suggested imagery, without a knight in shining armor to be rescued by, is a flourishing and fulfilling life possible by these standards? It, it would seem not. And, and even more, where is the longing for God in this particular description? And so we should not be surprised that persons often leave the church in pursuit of relationships that fall outside of God's prescribed framework for marriage. The church, just like the culture, has told them that romance and sex are essential for their flourishing. And so they are willing to do whatever is needed to get it, even if it lies outside of God's plan, even if they have to get it on their own terms. Abraham lived without land, it was not always easy. It did not mean that he didn't struggle with doubt. I'm sure he wrestled with his faith much more than if he had spent his life living on a lordly estate. But because he had to wrestle with his faith, his faith grew. 
so too we have to ask, can a Christian live without sex and romance? To be sure, a Christian cannot live without community, without friendship, and most importantly, without a deep relationship with God. However, a flourishing life is possible without sexual expression. As Paul tells us himself a single in 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is in some ways preferable. It does not mean that it's without struggle, but we as the church need to make sure that we're celebrating it alongside of marriage. Personally, many people that I have learned much from have been intentionally single. I think of Augustine and Aquinas. They both knew God deeply and they taught of God deeply. Augustine himself in his confessions, we see his open, openness about his struggle with, with sexual sins and he was a better theologian and pastor for it. We also have modern day luminaries such as Amy Carmichael, the missionary, theologian and disability advocate Henry Nouwen, Nazi resistor and memoirist Cory ten Boom, writer and uh, former Iowa City resident Flannery O'Connor, and Anglican minister John Stott. All single and all lived lives of flourishing. Lives with deep communities of friendship and most importantly, deep fellowship with God. And if we can't imagine a flourishing life without sex and romance, then we are no better than those who scratched their head at Abraham and didn't understand why didn't you just take the land of Canaan, just have the land. As we talked about last week, though, Abraham will find his fulfillment as the whole earth becomes the place where he and his offspring and those who are his offspring are the ones who share his faith, dwell intimately with God. We find a similar trajectory with both marriage and singleness. To quote theologian Oliver O'Donovan at length on this score, and this quote is a bit long, but it's just really, really good. O'Donovan says, Jesus taught that in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, Matthew 22:30. Humanity and the presence of God will know a community in which the fidelity of life, which marriage makes possible, will be extended beyond the limits of marriage. To this eschatological hope, and, and to say eschatological means the time when Christ will return, to this eschatological hope, the New Testament church bore witness by fostering the social condition which could support a vocation to the single life. It conceived of marriage and singleness as alternative vocations, each a worthy form of life, the two together comprising the whole Christian witness to the nature of affectionate community. The one declared that God had vindicated the order of creation, here he's talking about marriage, and the other pointed beyond to its eschatological transformation. So what O'Donovan is saying is that marriage and singleness need one another so that we as the church can have a full Christian witness to what kind of community that God has called us to. Therefore, let us celebrate marriage in the church. Few things are as beautiful as a lifelong sacrificial commitment to another, especially in a consumeristic culture that sees commitment to others as hindering our own self-fulfillment. Let us support marriages in our church in any way that we can. Perhaps call someone this week and offer to watch their kids for a date night and so help foster intimacy between that husband and that wife. And let us support singles in the church. Few things are as beautiful as someone who has given their desire to the greatest good of God himself over the very good gifts of romance and sex. 
And in this, we get a very taste of what life will be like in the resurrection when Christ himself returns. Therefore, let us support singles in the church in any way we can. If you desire land, you desire a good thing. Pray for it, just like Abraham did. But don't force the hand of God. If you desire marriage, you desire a good thing. Pray for it. And I say this with trepidation as as someone who is married. Don't force it. But again, there is someone who knows what it's like to live a full and flourishing life of singleness. Christ himself. As Hebrews 14 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ prays for and with singles as a single. With that, he prays for and with married couples as the bridegroom of his bride, the church. Whatever our experience, he can sympathize with our weakness, with our struggles, because he is our great high priest. And like Abraham, Jesus knows what it's like to be without land, to have no place to dwell. Christ tells us in Luke 9, 58, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Christ prays for and with Abraham as one without land. And so he is also Abraham's great high priest. And that brings us to our second point, the priesthood of God. The second part of the passage introduces us to Melchizedek. And uh, the book of Hebrews has much to say about this priest and king. And Hebrews tells us that he prefigures Christ in several important ways. In particular, in Hebrews 7, we find a quotation from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 says the following about the Christ, about the Messiah, about the one that is to come. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews tells us that that the Messiah is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what this means is that in many ways, Melchizedek prefigures Christ. And I want to focus on one of these in particular, but I do want to put it within the larger role of Melchizedek's priesthood. To begin with, we find a break in routine. At the end of chapter 12, at the end of chapter 13, Abraham responds to God's good and gracious promises by building an altar. But but here we see a break in that practice, and we should take note of that. And as one commentator writes, normally Abraham built his own altars and offered his own sacrifices. But here he is, recognizing the priesthood of another. Now the job of, of a priest is to mediate the relationship between God and his people. And here, it's Melchizedek himself, not Abraham, who assumes that role. Even more, in this account, we don't see God speaking directly to Abraham. Rather, Melchizedek speaks on behalf of God to Abraham. He says the following, quote, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, your your ESV Pew Bible may say possessor there, but there should be a footnote that says creator. And and I followed creator there, uh, in particular the work of an Old Testament scholar, John Goldengay, and he makes the point that in the Canaanite context, this word most commonly means creator. And here we we have a Canaanite context as Abraham is, is, is speaking and relating to the inhabitants of the land. It's also important to note that the 
Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, here has creator, and so does the, the Latin Vulgate. And with that, creator just makes more sense of the context that we are here dealing with, the, the context of Melchizedek's blessing. Melchizedek reminds Abraham that it's by God most high that these armies have been defeated. Again, Abraham is a substantial military power, but it's God, we find here, who has given Abraham the victory. And so Melchizedek keeps Abraham from getting a big head, getting arrogant. And we have to remember that this is a dangerous temptation. In our victories, often in our greatest victories, we are tempted to think we did it. I was promoted because of my hard work. I, my child succeeded because of my hard work. I got into my top school because of my hard work. I am financially stable because of my hard work. And there's an irony here because the very moment we begin to taste the good gifts of God's provision for us, we are also tempted to right away forget God as giver. But Melchizedek will not let Abraham do that. Because in victory, just like in tragedy, we are tempted to forget God's goodness and God's graciousness. Melchizedek reminds Abraham that it's God that has given the victory. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He's not just the possessor. He's the one who makes and sustains the very land that they're standing on, so his purposes will absolutely always prevail. Even the rival armies themselves would cease to exist if God was not continually sustaining them. Otherwise, they would simply disappear. And so Melchizedek strengthens Abraham's faith and also his resolve to refrain from taking things on his own terms in the wrong way. For the land that Abraham desires is the land that God has created and now sustains. It's not the chieftains who ultimately own this land, but it's God, and so God is free to give it who he, to whom he will see fit. And so Abraham doesn't need to be cruel. He doesn't need to be crafty. He doesn't need to be cunning. He doesn't need to be in a competitive relationship with other people. And we see this truth coming home to Abraham and the declining of, his, of, of the offer made by the king of Sodom. Uh, verses 21 and 23 say the following, And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abraham rich. Again, Abraham will not take anything that God does not intend for him. And specifically, we find here that he does not want to diminish the glory of God. Again, the only way to make sense of Abraham's life is because of the reality of, of God and his trust in that promise. Abraham doesn't want to give people any other explanations for understanding who he is and what he's doing. He doesn't want to give that foothold to the king of Sodom, where people could say, oh, now I understand. Now I understand why he's rich. Now I understand why he's doing what he's doing. I see that cooperation. I see that partnership. Abraham will have none of it. But even more, notice what Abraham says here. He repeats the very words of Melchizedek. He says, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. What has happened here? We find that the words of Melchizedek have actually strengthened Abraham's faith. Remember that the role of a priest is to minister God to God's 
people. And part of that is showing and reminding God's people who God is. Abraham, this God is God most high creator of heaven and earth. Are we doing this? Are we speaking to one another about God in this way, helping people in their times of trial and temptation and suffering? Just as did Melchizedek did for Abraham. When someone is weighed down with the burden of sin and guilt, do we speak of the God, the merciful God who forgives? When someone is unsure of the course of their life, do we speak of the God who in love predestined them before the foundation of the world, who works all things for their good, conforming them to the image of Christ, who before they were even born prepared all of the good works that they would walk in? When someone is frustrated with their work, do we speak of the God who alone can keep the laborers from working in vain? When we are wrestling with the fact that so many good things that we want have not come about, do we address God as the one for whom we have the highest desire? Even if we don't feel it at the moment, calling upon him in the words of Augustine as God of my heart, God my sweetness, oh my late joy. When someone is facing bodily illness, perhaps even death, do we speak of the God who as Melchizedek tells us, is the creator of heaven and earth. And so the one who creates and sustains each and every atom of their body, meaning that whatever comes to pass does not escape God's good and gracious plan. But we have to ask a final question here. Is creator all that we can say? Might there be a way that we can say more? Well, Hebrews 7.3 tells us the following when it speaks of Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now, the author of Hebrews is drawing special attention that we are not given any ancestry nor any lineage about Melchizedek here in the Genesis account. And then Hebrews makes an interesting move. It likens this lack of, of written genealogy, this, this lack of temporally ordered and sequential births to the one who is eternally begotten by the Father, the eternal Son of God. And so what does this all mean? Well, beyond calling God creator of heaven and earth, it means that we can actually call him something even more startling. Remember that Christ prays with us and for us as a single he prays with us and for us as one who is the bridegroom of his bride, the church. Remember that he prays for us as one who is landless, as the one who has no place to lay his head. Christ takes as his own our singleness, our marriedness, our landlessness, but he also takes more. Why is it so hard to believe the promises of God? Why do we so often fail to wait upon God to bring things about in his time and his way. It's not just that we don't believe God, but also that we don't believe ourselves worthy of the promise. We don't believe that we should really be receiving such great promises. Think about a, a child. A child is more likely to sneak desserts when they're in trouble. 
A child is more likely to sneak desserts when they've done something bad and they're in the room than when they come home with a shining report card because that child that's in trouble has every reason to believe that they are not going to get desserts, no matter how many vegetables they might eat in penance. We're the same way. We don't believe that we deserve these promises. And so we have to get what we want by cunning. We have to provide for ourselves. It's up to us to get what we want and get what we need. And there is truth here. Full disclosure, we, we, we don't deserve the promises of God. When we search our hearts, we know all the wrong we've done, all the things we'd cringe to share with others. But again, Christ takes more than our singleness, our marriedness, our landlessness, and so many other identities we hold. He also takes the punishment that we deserve for those things that burden us with guilt, that make us disbelieve that the promise of God is actually for us. Those things that lead us to take on our own terms. Jesus suffered the cross for just this reason. Yet Jesus does not take what we alone are due. He also gives us what he alone is due. Jesus is the eternal son of the Father, and he shares this identity with us. If we turn to Christ as our great high priest, then God is no longer just our creator and we his creatures. God is now our Father, and we, like Christ, are his children. Because the eternal son of God, the one without beginning, is our great high priest, the eternal father becomes our father. This is what it means to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Abraham received the following blessing, quote, blessed be Abraham by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. However, Christ receives an even greater blessing. He receives it from his father after he rises from the waters of baptism. The father looks down in tender love and says to him, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And this is the very blessing that we receive when we look to Christ as our great high priest. For when we are in Christ, the Father does not just say, I have created you, but he looks down upon you in tender love and says, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Recall that the job of the priest is to mediate our relationship with God. And when Christ is our priest, when he is our representative, he has pleased God in every way possible. Nothing, absolutely nothing that you could do could please God more than what Christ has already done for you on your behalf. And because we know that we are children of God in whom God delights by the work of Christ alone, we never have to be like that disobedient child who feels like he must steal the dessert. We need not be crafty. Because we have a God who loves us as his own child and who will give us what is best for us in the best way possible. To quote perhaps the most famous verse of the entire Bible, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is our priest. This is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. God loved us, and so he did everything he possibly could at the greatest cost to himself to make us his children. He really, really did. Ask yourself, do you really believe that? Is that a concrete reality in your life? Are you like that disobedient child, or are you able to rest in his favor? 
He will give you what you need in the right time. So then, why is it important that Abraham be given the land by God rather than his own efforts? Well, if Abraham took the land, he would have to defend the land. He would have to be on constant guard. He might even lose the land. The land might be taken by another coalition of kings the very next day. But if Abraham is given the land by God, he can rest. God has given it to him, and God will ensure that he keeps it forever, just as God had promised. In the same way, why is it important that Christ is our high priest? Well, if Christ is our high priest, then Christ himself has earned God's pleasure and blessing and favor and fatherly love for us. And so we, just like the land, can never, ever lose it. We never earned it in the first place. It's not our land to take. It's not our land to defend. It was Christ's gift to us, and so we cannot unearn it. Because again, it never rested in our own doing. If Christ is our high priest, we can rest knowing that the salvation, just like the land, is God's own doing. And so all he calls us to do is to trust and rest and be patient in him. This is the promise of God given to us by the priesthood of God. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have given us such a great high priest, one who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who is before all things, endures through all things, who is without beginning and is eternal, which means that he is the one that is your son, that he relates to you as a beloved child to a loving father. And because we...